following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Well, I'm sure that uh, all of you who have known anything of what happened in Turkey and Syria have had this on your minds and even as we gather today. As of today, over 28,000 people have died. There'll be many more. And hundreds of thousands have lost their homes. Well, what are we to think about this? How are we to think about it? Of course, there are those that... uh, Uh, will say that this was merely a natural disaster uh, over which there was no divine hand. Uh, There are Christians this day who are going to say, well, yes, uh, God knew it was going to happen, but it was not God's will that occurred. Now, we automatically reject those approaches to what happened. Uh, So how then are we to think about it? Well, it is an act of God's temporal judgment. And we must be able to affirm that. It's an act of God's temporal judgment. But how do we think about that act of judgment? How do we apply that act of judgment? How would we approach people there or people with whom we speak this week about that? There's a supercilious, self-righteous, and complacent way to approach that. That in pride and contempt, well, these people got exactly what they deserve. Many of them persecute Christians. They worship a false god, and God has acted in a just and proper manner. And that's true. But how do you think about it? How do you express that? Well, Bildad expresses it in a way of pride and complacency. And we're going to look at this response of a proud man to uh, such judgment. And then we'll consider at the very end, how does our Savior look at what happened? And how does he want us to look at what happened? Now, Bildad is a perfect example of a proud, self-righteous response that we would often find that comes out of our theology. Now, an abuse of our theology, but uh, I've heard this through the years. And you have as well. And perhaps you yourself are tempted to respond in this manner to the suffering. So this is Bildad's second speech. We started the uh, second round of speeches with Zophar's speech in chapter 15. Job has responded in 16 and 17. We saw last week the response of an afflicted man in his trials as to cast himself on the Lord by faith is to comfort himself with the realization that God uses his trials, his encouragement of the Christians, to castigate the materialism that defines the Christian life and God's blessing in terms of our possessions and, and our toys. And as Job ends now, Bildad jumps into the conversation. The, the speeches remain numbered, and Bildad's are always the shortest. So he spoke the first time in chapter 18. This speech really is not greatly different from chapter 18, except it's marked by more pride, cynicism, complacency. 
At, at least in chapter 18, when Bildad exposes Job and accuses him of windy words, that um, he does base his remarks on the tradition of the fathers, that, you know, he doesn't have this opinion on his own, although by the time he finishes, his pride begins to show. And in, eight, in, in that first speech in chapter 8, he calls Job to repentance with hope. But when you look at this speech, you'll see there's not a call here of repentance, and there's no call for hope. You see how he concludes his speech in verse 21. Surely such are the dwellings of the wicked, and this is the place of him who does not know God. Now he speaks of the wicked, but it's obvious at this point that he has one particular wicked hypocrite in mind, and that is Job. He actually begins to speak uh, in verse Two, in the plural, how long will you all hunt for words? He puts Job now into a class of people, the hypocrite. And so what, what we learn here is that the self-righteous man condemns all who suffer and looks on their trial with cold indifference and lack of compassion. The self-righteous person condemns all who are afflicted and looks on their trial with cold indifference and lack of compassion. As we think about this, we want to think about our own hearts. We also want to think what we can learn here. As I've shown you, there's much truth. In fact, I think everything that Bildad says in verses 5 to 21 is true, which makes it all the more uh, important that we listen to what the Spirit is actually doing here. So two things, the attitude of the self-righteous and the analysis of the self-righteous. And I say 5 and 21 because 1 to 4, we come across or we come to the attitude of the self-righteous. As he picks up the thread of the dialogue and Spirit gives that to us at the beginning of each speech, then so-and-so responded or answered and said. And Bildad shows his pride here in three ways. How long will you hunt for words? Show understanding. Then we can talk. Why are we regarded as beasts and stupid in your eyes, O you who tear yourself in your anger? For your, for your sake is the earth to be abandoned or the rock to be moved from its place. We see three things here in his attitude. He doesn't listen. He cannot take reproof or admonition. And he lashes out furiously in anger. Now, in verse 2, we see that he is not listening. Now, he's repeating here what he says in chapter 8, what Eliphaz will say, and that is, Job is merely blowing in the wind. How long will you hunt for words, show understanding, then we can talk? They've said your words are like wind and like destructive wind. And now he says, you're, you're using rhetoric uh, to prove your case. You're hunting for a way to say this. Uh, Listen, Job, show understanding, and we can talk. Now, who has shown understanding here? Who has had windy words? As we compare the speeches of the three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zohar, with Job's speech, they've come with certain presuppositions that if you're suffering the way Job suffers, you are wicked, and they're going to hear nothing else. They keep pounding on Job with this theme. In fact, as they move their way, progress through Job, they're actually going to have to invent sins 
to um, fortify their case. Job's the one who's shown wisdom. You understand that. Um, he has answered their accusation. He has said, I'm not suffering as a guilty righteous. I don't know why I'm suffering, he says. You remember, he began kind of the same place they did. Um, he'd been blessed of God, and, and now what's going on? But he knows that their answer is not right. And so he set forth arguments and reasons. He's argued from the tradition of the fathers. He's argued from the history of mankind. He's actually argued from God's general revelation amongst the beast. He has shown understanding and wisdom, and they refuse to listen to what he says. And so the response then to him is simply in pride to say, how long will you hunt for words? Just show some understanding, Job, and we can talk. And the reason they say he's not showing understanding is he is not agreeing with them. You know, we do that, don't we? We think if a person doesn't agree with us, then that means that they don't have understanding. A couple of you were in a class with me uh, last semester, and there's a dear brother in there, and I, I love him greatly. And we got into the uh, mode of baptism and uh, asked him what he thought. He said it was quite clear uh, that uh, we are to follow Jesus in baptism, that he was immersed, and we are to be immersed. So looked at the prepositions and said, well, you know, this doesn't teach us that Jesus was immersed. I took him to Philippian eunuch who, I mean, uh, Philip who went into the water with the eunuch, went, and the same prepositions are used. He went into the water. He baptized him. He came up out of the water. But if this meant that immersion, that means that Philip went under the water with the eunuch and then baptized the eunuch. And but the man says, uh, yes, we just have to follow Jesus in baptism. His mind was made up. And even though I and others would come with some rational arguments, uh, he wasn't listening. And any of us can do that if we get our little pet uh, theories that we don't want challenged. So be careful that you don't become uh, with this attitude of, of a self-righteous person, that you're willing to have particularly your little pet theories um, challenged by other Christians. You might be correct, but be willing to be challenged and to search the scriptures. Now, second, we see that Eliphaz, himself, I mean, Bildad cannot himself take reproof or admonition. So in verse 3, why are regarded as beasts as stupid in your eyes? Now, Job never called them beasts. What Job said was, in the first place, you don't have a corner on wisdom. I'm not inferior to you in wisdom. I'm equal with you in wisdom. I also know the tradition of the church and the fathers, and I can point out plenty of historical examples of people that uh, prove my point. And he said, just look at God's general revelation of the beast in the field. That there is uh, the sense there of justice and, and injustice, apparently, that's taking place. It's not the meek always that prosper, you know, wolves eat lambs. Um, and so Job had expressed this to them, calling them, and he'll do that even more so in his next speech to repentance, but they are not, uh, are not hearing him. In fact, he called them to um, a repentance. In verse 10 of his previous speech, come again, all of you now. I do not find a wise man among you. They couldn't accept that. Their wisdom was premised upon their uh, proposition, their theology, 
And Job uh, was pushing back on that and giving them evidence, and they are refusing to repent. They're refusing the admonition. We must be careful that we also don't refuse to repent. Sometimes um, if a self-righteous person uh, comes uh, at you uh, and you, you bristle, or perhaps it's a really sinful person who comes and admonishes you. Uh, I had an experience when I was a youth minister in Meridian, Mississippi. I think it was after my junior year in college, and uh, I was doing some hypocritical things. And a guy that was cooked on LSD, I'd maybe talked to him once the whole time there. We had no personal interaction. Comes and knocks on my door and stands on the doorstep and a LSD drunken state and says, you're a hypocrite. I walked away. I was a hypocrite. Now, what was my response going to be? Well, this, who's this guy to tell me that I'm a hypocrite? Look at him. He's a gross sinner. But the Spirit blessed me in that, humbled me under that, and I could take that. And we must be willing, if our children rebuke us, particularly men, if your wives have to admonish you or rebuke you, uh, we, must, uh, we must take that. And if people come to us in a self-righteous way and rebuke us, we must be able to humble ourselves. And if we see... If it's valid, confess. And if you don't think it's valid, you simply say, well, I don't see what you're talking about, but I want to pray about it. And I'll get back to you. Be open to advice and admonition. Don't be like one with the attitude of Bildad. And then we see that the self-righteous lashes out to do harm, to hurt. Verse 4, oh, you who tear yourself and your anger... For your sake is the earth to be abandoned or the rock to be moved from its place. He's accusing Job of being insane. Like the demoniac in the, in the, uh, the graves in, in, in the gatherings. Tearing himself, tearing his chains across, roaring through uh, the cemetery. Job had said, God's tearing me. God's putting his arrows into me. And he was wrong. And he'll be rebuked for that. But after his first lament in chapter 3, Job has spoken fairly sanely. He's placed argument upon argument. He has progressed through this. And he certainly has not in any way asked that providence to be overthrown for his exoneration. That's what he's accused of. For your sake, is the earth to be abandoned or the rock to be moved from its place? You see, Bildad was convinced that the moral sphere of, of God's rule was all tied into his theology that a wicked man uh, suffers the way Job is suffering. And so to not accept that moral argument is to overthrow all of God's rule in the world. And so he simply accuses Job of impiety once again and, and of blasphemy. But again, in all of this, what we see is the attitude of a self-righteous person, one unwilling to consider, one who looks at the world then through particular spectacles. And that brings us to his analysis. You see, we cannot separate our analysis of his analysis apart from his attitude. So he gives an analysis in verses 5 to 21. 
Every word that he says here is true. In fact, I'll show you that many of the things he says are picked up in Psalms, Proverbs, and even rest of the prophets. So the problem is not in his uh, analysis of God's acts of judgment, but it is in his manner and application. That's how we are going to learn both positively from what he says, but also how God can correct us from what he says. So uh, he now approaches uh, Job with this analysis that Job is a wicked man. In verse 5, the light of the wicked goes out. He's a wicked man. And there are five things here that uh, Bildad says God does to the wicked. Now, in the first place, God takes away the light and joy of the life of the wicked and eventually snuffs out his life. So verses 5 and 6, indeed, the light of the wicked goes out. The flame of his fire gives no light. The light in his tent is darkened. His lamp goes out above him. Now, light in the tent or the house is a sign of, of pleasure and, and of joy and of, of duration. I don't know about you. I love, love the winter. I sit in the mornings when it's very early and dark outside in front of my fireplace to read the Bible. And I love lamps, the kind of nice light that they put through a room and Light is a sign of pleasure and joy and, and God's blessing upon us. So what Bildad is saying here is that God, in fact, is going to uh, uh, remove uh, this joy, this pleasure, by taking away the light uh, that's in his dwelling uh, and making it a dark place. So uh, Solomon says in Proverbs that uh, the, the light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked goes out. So there's this contrast. And Bildad is correct. Proverbs 20, 20. The wicked curses his father or his mother. His lamp will go out in time of darkness. Or 24, 20. There'll be no future for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. And so he's saying that God's going to snuff out his life, its pleasure, its joy, it's cordiality. All will be taken away by God's judgment. True. Next, he says that the wicked is going to be ensnared in the traps that he lays for the righteous. Verses 7 to 10. His vigorous stride is shortened and his own scheme brings him down. For he's thrown into the net by his own feet. He steps on the webbing. A snare seizes him by the heel. A trap snaps shut on him. A noose for him is hidden in the ground and a trap for him in the path. Now, this is a, a theme again throughout Scripture that the wicked lay snares for the righteous. And so now he's saying that Job and the class of wicked has actually laid snares to entrap the righteous and do harm. And boy, he piles one word upon another. He uses six different words here for snares that were used by hunters to, uh, to capture um, animals. And so he uses uh, net, webbing, snare, trap, two different words for trap, and a noose for him in the ground. And you can let your imagination run, particularly you boys, and, and think of how many animals you could snare with birds. When I uh, 
uh, was, I guess in middle school, I was raising pigeons for a while, and I would, uh, I'd, uh, I'd get a cardboard box, and I'd put a stick on it with a string on it, pop the box up, put some corn inside, hide. The pigeon goes in there to get the very simple trap. Get the corn, I pull the stick. And that's a trap. Now there's ways to trap rabbits and there's ways to trap big beasts, everything else. And so the idea here is, is that the wicked are constantly laying snares for the righteous. And of course, when you read this in the Psalms, understand that the, the one who does this most in your life are the devils. Just because you don't apparently have any earthly enemies who are after you at this point. You've got this enemy who is laying snares for you. Temptations, subtle temptations wanting to trip you up. Well, that's what Job is accused of here. Uh, and the principle is that those who lay such snares will be captured by their snares. And so in um, Psalm 119.110, snares are laid for the righteous. But in Psalm 510, the prayer is, Hold them guilty, O God, by their own devices let them fall. Or Psalm 916, The Lord has made himself known. He's executed judgment in the work of his own hands. The wicked is snared. So, again, what he says here is absolutely true. That the wicked are going to lay snares for the righteous. Multitude of black wisdom to trip us up, as well as Satan himself. Uh, but... We know from Scripture, and again, it's a refrain in the Psalms, that God causes them to be captured in their own snares. That's what's happening now to Job. So, and this will tie in later when he starts inventing, uh, they start inventing sins for Job. He said, Job, you did this to the poor, you did this and that. You see now, it's coming back on you. You're being captured in your own snares. That wasn't true with Job. It is very true, though, in the providence of God. Uh, think about Haman, who is hanged on the gallows that he built for uh, Mordecai. And how many nations, in fact, have been caught in the snares of, of their evil throughout uh, the millennia? And God will eventually turn the tables on those who seek to lay traps, and he will on Satan as well. In fact, isn't the book of Job an example of Satan being caught in his own snares? He lays a snare for Job, and all that happens through this is Job grows from righteousness to greater righteousness uh, for the glory of God. Satan is defeated. And of course, the great snare, trap that Satan laid was for our Savior himself. And he gloated when our Savior uh, was arrested, condemned, and crucified. He thought he'd won. But you see, he got caught in his own snare. So the righteous will always be delivered. The wicked will all be, always be captured in their own snare. But it's not always, you see. That's the problem. Well, the third judgment that he announces here is the judgment uh, on his life itself. Uh, verses uh, uh, 12 through 14. His strength is famished. Calamity is ready at his side. His skin is devoured by disease. The firstborn of death devours his limbs. He's torn from the security of his tent, and they march him before the king of terrors. Masterful language. This, this whole speech, uh, the metaphors to describe God's punishment are quite powerful. So here uh, we see that uh, the wicked in this life are going to be continually frightened by terrors. We talked earlier about the terrors of conscience, the paranoia that often have the wicked. But I was thinking about earthquake victims 
And if you've read anything about this, you know that there's going to be thousands of people that will, will not want to sleep in a house ever again. It happened, Bertie told us, it happened in Iran. And it's going to happen now in Turkey because now they live in terror of this judgment. Well, imagine living in terror of God's judgment and terror of a conscience that condemns and terror uh, and, and paranoia. Well, that is the judgment of God that begins in this life. And then physically, his strength is famished. In other words, he's, he's going to go hungry. And calamity is all around him. Now you know he has in mind here. His skin is devoured by disease. And the firstborn of death devours his limbs. Now the firstborn of death is a tragic death, a strong death, a death such as Job is undergoing. And he's torn from the security of his tent, his seat of trust, literally. And they march him before the king of terrors, which could be hell itself. And so a life of terror, a life of physical anguish, and a life, a certain death, a life that leads to hell. That's the imminent punishment of the wicked, according to uh, Bildad. And then the loss of, of any secure dwelling and of any posterity. Uh, verses 15 uh, through 17. There dwells in his tent nothing of his. It's been emptied out. Brimstone is scattered on his habitation. His roots are dried below. His branch is cut off from above. Memory of him perishes from the earth, and he has no name abroad. His house is stripped. His house and himself are going to be subject to a fiery judgment of God. Uh, perhaps even as the Savior has that in mind, uh, here Bildad's thinking about Sodom and Gomorrah and the judgment that came upon them. But he also must be thinking about the fiery judgment that came upon Job with the lightning strikes that destroyed property and, and, and servants. And so once again, he has no compassion that here's what happens to the wicked. Just what's happened to you, Job? His roots are dried from below. He's going to rot. And his branch is cut off from above. He'll have no posterity. There's nothing going to be left of him physically. In fact, not even his memory. The memory of him perishes from the earth and he has no name abroad. Now, the curse of Zechariah will dwell in his house. The curse comes upon those that steal and, and bear false witness. And the Lord has set his face, as it says in Psalm 34, against evildoers to cut off memory of them from the earth. The great majority of the wicked go away in infamy and, and their name is forgotten. But there could also be a, a twist here that uh, the memory, in other words, the good memory is gone. We think of the infidels. We think of a Stalin or a Hitler or uh, a Castro. Uh, and there's no good memory. So even those that still have some recognition, it's infamy. It's not a good memory. That's what happens to the wicked, though. Uh, and their family is cut off and destroyed. And then he gives a summary of it all in verses 18 to 21. He's driven from light into darkness, back to darkness again, chased from the inhabited world. He has no offspring or posterity among his people or any survivor where he sojourned. Those in the West, and I prefer the reading in the margin, those uh, from, uh, who come after, 
and are appalled at his fate and those who have gone before, because the word east and west are never used as without word day, at least in my studies. And so they're often a figure for that which has gone, comes after, goes before. And so what he's saying is, is that um, those who learn about the fate of Job will be appalled. And contemporaries, those who've gone before and their families, when this is, see what's going on, are going to be seized with awful horror. So in summary, it's hopeless. He has no hope of any future. And people will all around him be appalled. And then surely, verse 21, such are the dwellings of the wicked. There's no place of him who does not know God. So the person who does not know God, this is what he can expect. Now, just to remind you where we are, what we have seen here uh, in this chapter is that the self-righteous person condemns all who are afflicted and looks on their trial with cold indifference and lack of compassion. But we also have here is a very eloquent and metaphorical description of God's judgments in this life and in hell itself. And I want you to pay attention to that. All of these things are repeated elsewhere in Scripture. And they're particularly repeated against hypocrites in the church. I have no reason to think any person here today is a hypocrite. Some of you boys and girls might grow up to be hypocrites, and you need to pay attention to, to these warnings and ask God to guard your heart. But um, this is the record of God's judgment. This is what he does to the wicked sometimes in this life, always in hell. So we have a very apt description here of temporal punishments. And compare what Bildad says with Westminster Larger Catechism 28. What are the miseries of sin? The punishments of sin in this world are either inward as blindness of mind, reprobate sense, strong delusions, hardness of heart, horror of conscience, and vile affections, or outward as the curse of God upon the creatures for our sakes and all other evils that befall us and our bodies, names, estates, relations, and employments, together with death itself. A very apt summary of what Bildad says. And what about hell? Logic Catechism 29. What are the punishments of sin in the world to come? Punishment of sin in the world to come or everlasting separation from the comfortable presence of God and most grievous torments in soul and body without intermission in hellfire forever. Now that's pictured here. And the deliverance is in the very last words of verse 21. This is the place of him who does not know God. You see, this description reminds us of our need to rest in Jesus Christ, whom to know is life eternal. To know by faith, to rest in him, in his perfect work, for he is the alone redeemer from the wrath of God, but he is the sure redeemer from the wrath of God. So every one of you this morning, from the youngest to the oldest, be sure in your own conscience right now, boys and girls, that you are trusting in Jesus Christ and him alone to save you from your sins. Not what you do. Not how obedient you might be. Not that you can pray in the prayer meeting or you can read the Bible, but you're trusting Jesus Christ and him alone. So that's true. It's also true for you men that want to preach. 
you should learn in a proper way from his metaphors how to preach judgment and hell. It's part of our gospel work. It's part of the preaching of the law. And we must learn to do it better and better and better. And the same in our witnessing. But what's wrong here? Well, there's two things. The first is the manner. You see, he offers no hope here, does he? He had earlier. He's fed up with Job. So he's cold and indifferent. On the throne of his own self-importance and righteousness, he's simply throwing bombs now at Job uh, and no compassion. Uh, those great young men in the early days of the uh, free church would meet together on Monday, Bonners and McShane. And uh, in one of their meetings on Monday, McShane asked uh, Bonner, on what did you preach yesterday? He said, I preached on hell. And McShane said, did you do it with tears? Did you do it with tears? You see, Bill Dad wasn't preaching judgment with tears. He was preaching judgment from the seat of of self-righteousness. And we've got to be careful. That's why I I took took that passage in Matthew, you see. For the Savior denounces serious judgment on the cities of his day. uh, With warnings. But this is the Savior who wept over Jerusalem. This is the Savior who, in the midst of these people, who reject him, calling out, Come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden. And so you you never preach judgment apart from Christ. And you don't preach judgment in some censorious manner. No, we must do so with broken hearts. Recognizing this is the end of all those who, who reject Christ. So how would the Savior answer about the judgment in Turkey and Syria? Well, the first, he sent it. It it is his will. And we know that from Luke chapter 13. It is his will that all of these people be destroyed in this manner. It is an act of temporal judgment. But there is this great mystery of the gentleness of our Savior. Remember, God's great glory is his goodness. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, full of loving kindness and mercy, forgiving. Takes all three major words for sin. But he does say at the end, but not holding him guiltless who does sin. Here is the need for balance. We are to pray in precatory psalms. Now, how do we pray in precatory psalms against persecutors of the church and then not respond with gloating when God does it? That's how we have to train ourselves. Uh, We let God gloat. We leave room for his vindication, for his burning coals. So we pray the precatory psalms. Even doing so, we should have some brokenness, not pride, supercilious um, self-righteousness. And then mourn. Mourn for those who have perished in this manner. Now, the second part of the Savior's answer is also in Luke chapter 13. Do you think they were worse sinners than you? No, judgment begins in the household of God, and many righteous people 
died in these earthquakes. Fickert wrote Mike Cuneo, who wrote me yesterday about some of the believers who died. Early in chapel, we heard of a pastor and his wife uh, who uh, died in Syria. And so we don't, again, say that everybody who suffered this is wicked. God's purposes are far beyond our understanding. And so we put our hands over our mouths and we say, God, let him do what's right. He always does what's right. So this is how we can learn from Bildad about the judgment in Turkey and Syria. It is God's temporal judgment. But we're going to approach it with uh, uh, humility, mourning, and grace. And take heed, then, as our Savior says, to our own hearts. And plead for our own country. For if any country deserves what happened uh, to those cities, it is America. So plead with God for grace, mercy, and compassion. Let us pray. Oh, holy God in heaven, we thank you, Lord, that uh, you've put this speech here that we might learn these lessons. This is wisdom literature. And that Job would learn as well. And even from this response that he would grow in grace. And God, God has granted that we will as well, Lord. It will be certain that we're resting in Christ alone. And that we can preach judgment, but do so with compassion. We can pray in pregatory psalms, but not gloat in the judgment. And above all, we look at our own hearts. For Christ's sake, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.